brothers and sisters and friends, I'd like to make a few introductory remarks before giving the message that I have prepared. My message is taken from the writings of the Apostle Paul, given over 1,900 years ago. Paul was born as Saul of Tarsus, being both a Jew and a Roman citizen. He became a powerful persecutor of those who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and King. Saul was not motivated by malice, but by the belief that he was working against an enemy of his Jewish faith. En route to Damascus to pursue his persecutions, a bright heavenly light suddenly enveloped him, and he fell helplessly to the ground. A voice asked, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? In response, Saul asked two questions. Who art thou, Lord? What wilt thou have me do? The Christ identified himself as Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Then he told Saul to go to the city of Damascus, where he would be instructed. Having been struck blind, Saul was assisted into the city by his companions. There Ananias, a disciple and servant of the Lord, restored Saul's sight and informed him that God had chosen him to know his will and hear his voice, that he was to be a witness unto all men the resurrected Christ. He was baptized by Ananias and from that time on dedicated himself to the upbuilding of the Lord's kingdom. When he was ordained, Saul became a great defender of the faith, a dynamic teacher of righteousness, and a fearless preacher of the wor- uh, to the world. He went first to the Jews in their synagogues, then subsequently made three missionary journeys carrying the message of the resurrected Christ to many people. While on a mission to the Gentiles, he became known as Paul. His love for and interest in his converts found him returning to oversee their progress and writing them letters of exhortation. I have a great respect for the Apostle Paul. I admire his honesty, his courage, honesty, strength of faith, and deep testimony. I love his teachings and find them equally applicable to the people of today. He was specially chosen, a true witness of the resurrected Christ. As a witness, what was Paul's responsibility? To teach the message of faith, repentance, and baptism. To bear witness to the divine mission of the Savior. To outline man's relationship to Jesus and to God our Father to strengthen testimony, to define doctrine, and to reinforce the teachings of the Christian Church. He also instructed the people in their everyday living and gave warning to the world. Aren't these goals of our Latter-day Saint Church leaders? In all meetings and at all times, they seek to increase faith, build testimony, strengthen commitment, bless people, teach duties and responsibilities, develop leadership, increase spirituality, and also give warning. I desire to present my message from Paul's own words as selected from his writings. 
He stated his principal theme when he courageously declared to the Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said to Timothy, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Paul also taught that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This doctrine is still true. No man can enter into the heaven into heaven on his own terms. God's plan is the only way to achieve this goal, and Christ is our teacher and exemplar. Paul declared, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Paul admonished Timothy, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Paul also taught explicitly about the resurrection. Know ye not, he asked, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Concerning his preaching, Paul said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. His counsel for others who desired to preach include these words. And how shall they preach except they be sent? And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Aaron was called of God by revelation. Paul emphasized unity of faith. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Then he asked, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The Apostle Paul outlined explicit ways for the saints to live as true Christians, preparing themselves for exaltation. He reminded the leaders, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. In teaching faith, he first defined it as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Then he gave the promise, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And he instructed, Fight the good fight of faith. Stressing the importance of prayer, Paul advised, I exhort you, I exhort therefore that first of all, 
supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Paul kept the saints in remembrance of the necessity to read and study the scriptures. To Timothy he said, From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Family members were instructed, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And the wife, see that she reverence her husband. Teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husband, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Then to all he taught, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Other important teachings include prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, let us walk honestly as in the day, remember the poor, give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Bear ye one another's burdens. Let us do good unto all men. Let brotherly love continue. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. Remember them which have the, which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Paul further counseled, Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings. Let us, therefore, let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, 
and the God of love and peace shall be with you. The dangers of riches were pointed out, and Paul stressed the necessity of their being put to proper usage. Wisely, he reminded, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly of all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works. Paul also pronounced these significant warnings. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we read Paul's predictions of the wickedness to come, we find many similarities to the world conditions of today. Ponder these warnings. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into favor. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. The ungodliness of which Paul warned is present in our world today and becoming increasingly prevalent. But just as he gave us warning, he also gave us guidance and counsel. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate, breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of, of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always that ye might walk worthy of the Lord. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think on these things. Then he gave this promise, that we can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us.
Paul impressively taught the importance of patterning our lives after the Lord Jesus Christ, striving constantly toward perfection. The writings of the Apostle Paul can give us answers, direction, and strength, just as they aided the saints in the early church. If we prayerfully ponder not only the words of Paul, but all the scriptures now available to us, our lives can be strengthened and enriched. How beautifully and completely Paul encompassed all that would enable us to gain the greatest happiness in this life and exaltation in the life to come. Paul proclaimed the truth boldly, and frankly, just as our dear prophet Spencer Kimball does today, if we follow our present prophet's counsel and that given by the Apostle Paul many years ago, we cannot go astray. I bear solemn witness to the sacredness of the Apostle Paul's teaching. To accept and live them will bring peace and happiness to all who are sincerely searching for light and truth. This I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, I sincerely pray that in this balcony and listening on the radio and on television, there might be those who are serving in the Church as perhaps librarians, primary teachers, ward clerks, state clerks, those who don't have much opportunity to preside, but who love the Lord and love the work. And to you, I would just say this, that one of the most devastating experiences of our space age is when a multi-billion dollar space effort is on final countdown, only to be placed on hold due to a technical failure. Unless the problem can be identified and corrected within a very short time, the mission will need to be scrapped and perhaps rescheduled weeks later when the moon phase comes right again. The cost of that technical failure becomes astronomical in terms of man-hours and money. In fact, it was reported on one such occasion that the malfunction turned out to be a small transistor worth about 30 cents. Now, just as space probes depend upon tens of thousands of other lesser components in their so-called support system, so does the Lord depend upon tens of thousands in the support system that his ultimate objective of blessing the lives of people and qualifying them for eternal life might be accomplished on schedule. Today I would suggest a sincere tribute to the tremendous priesthood support system in operation throughout the Church. People in so-called lesser callings, individuals who carry on week after week, month after month, without fanfare and too often without even a simple thank you. Today, may we say thanks to building custodians all over the Church who dust and dust, who sweep and sweep, who clean and clean, and there it is again next Monday, the building in total disarray. And the process starts all over again, just as on every previous Monday. Money cannot buy the kind of love and devotion that is required to face those Monday mornings. Building custodians have strong testimonies like you and I. If they didn't, 
they couldn't possibly face the awesome task of keeping our places of worship as they need to be at the appropriate hour. Without testimony, they could not remain pleasant when we perform a thoughtless act that adds to their burden. Oh, that every warden branch had greeters and ushers assigned for each worship service. Where members are so assigned and carry out their responsibilities properly, a reverential setting is assured. It can make such a difference when saints are greeted at the door ever so cordially but in quiet, subdued tones that each one might be reminded, that each one might begin to get in tune even before the meeting begins. We need more of that in the Church. And as we wait for the service to begin, we must make the transition from worldly cares and concerns. May we pay tribute to a multitude of organists who play ever so softly, that heavenly music that mellows the heart and brings a peace of mind compatible with the teachings we seek. We offer very little thanks to our teachers throughout the Church. Each good teacher spends hours in preparation, not minutes but hours. Scriptural references and concepts are pondered. The right words need to be found. Then those right words need to come out modulated by the Spirit, for this Church has always been taught, If ye receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. May we ever bless the name of those who convey the truth. In one of Carolyn Pearson's poems, she likens eternity to a school play. References made to the unlikely persons who frequently receive the starring role and how they seem to invariably rise to the occasion and develop beyond expectation because of the confidence that someone has placed in them. I think Heavenly Father is a lot like that. Ours is a Church of involvement. On a continuing basis, we are witnesses to those who have responded to a divine calling as we mumble to ourselves, Why him? Why her? And a short time later, it's all too obvious as we note the personal growth taking place, as hidden talents begin to develop, and were it not for the inspiration connected with the Church calling, if we were forced to use the yardstick of the world in measuring the potential of an individual, our progress would be, of, would be greatly impaired. For it is true, without vision the people perish. In the work of the Lord, we neither seek position nor should we refuse the opportunity to serve when called. The story is told of one good brother, obviously quite new in the Church, and he was most eager to serve in the front ranks. And Between conference sessions, he had the good fortune of shaking hands with President Hugh B. Brown and immediately asked the question, President Brown, how does someone get to be a bishop in the Church? Well, answered President Brown, the process is very simple. You just have to be invited by the Lord. <laughs> what a tremendous goal for every Latter-day Saint to qualify in every way to be worthy of an invitation from the Lord, no matter what that calling might be. This same poem also makes allusion to the so-called spear carriers in the school drama. This church, like the school play, would indeed lose its savor without the spear carriers, those who make the scene complete although they all but lose themselves in the background. These are the faithful members who are so important and form the Lord's support system 
in the greatest space probe of all time. Every great Church leader of today was a spear carrier yesterday. That is what eternal progress is all about. This divine process of human development is the very foundation of the gospel plan. May we also pay tribute to thousands who have stepped back momentarily from the front ranks to pick up a spear for the final scenes, at least in this life. I know a former mission president who now serves willingly and capably as a ward clerk. A former stake president is now the deacon's quorum advisor and preparing young men for missions as they have never been prepared before. We reflect on one of the great observations of this dispensation. It doesn't matter where we serve, but how we serve. Ask any parent how important a good scoutmaster is. Ask any bishop how important his ward clerks are. Ask any teacher how indispensable the ward library staff is. It's too bad we can't ask someone who lived 300 years ago how important he thinks a genealogical researcher is. Some of the more glamorous spear carriers in Heavenly Father's army we call counselors. What a choice spirit these people have, always keeping themselves just a half-step behind their file leader, always ready to express an opinion, ever willing to accept a final decision, even though that final decision be in a totally different direction. Gospel concepts, as taught by the Savior, are sometimes difficult for the mind of mortal man. For you see, God's ways are not man's ways, and all of us need to learn that lesson well. I suppose some of what we have been talking about here today is involved in the divine truth that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. There could be many surprises in the hereafter as we look up ahead and exclaim in amazement, but he was only a home teacher. You know and I know that if he was the kind of a home teacher that the handbook talks about and lives worthily, that man could stand eligible to inherit all that the Father has. And there is no greater blessing than that. It is also interesting to note that these brethren who sit behind me are bound by the exact same set of, et of eternal standards as every other member of the Church. In that final judgment that is just and true, there will be one set of rules and one only. God is no respecter of persons, and how significant that there is no private access to the scriptures. Holy Writ is the same for the newest convert as for members of the First Presidency. To every spirit carrier in the Church, we express a sincere thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for the way you carry out your responsibility for the Lord. Thank you for the support and sustaining influence that we feel as we visit among you. Without that support, there would be no Church organization as we know it today. People's lives would not be blessed so abundantly. May we all go forth willingly, effectively, full of faith, with an eye single to His glory, is my prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The gospel makes evil-minded men good, and good men better, and women and children better than they've ever been before, so said the prophet David O. McKay. I would like to illustrate this by sharing with you a conversion story. The account concerns uh, Louis Novak, a Lutheran minister, his wife Alice, and their two children, Kurt and Kristen. 
Reverend Novak and his wife had been born, baptized, raised, confirmed, and married in the Lutheran Church. It was with a sense of pride on the part of his parents and a sense of duty on his own part that he went through two private Lutheran colleges and a Lutheran theological graduate school to become a, a pastor in the American Lutheran Church. For nearly 14 years, he and his wife served in the Lutheran Church and endeavored to find peace and truth in their service. During this period, from all external appearances, they were able to attain a level of income, a style of life, social stratum, and education, which left little to be desired. With such stability and high approval from family and friends and supervisors, it could be said that they had it made, but they were not satisfied. They had a haunting insecurity in their souls that something very basic and important was missing in their lives. They could not be satisfied. The soul that is honest in heart must search. In Reverend Novak's words, as I look back on my life and my experience, I realize my dissatisfaction stemmed from a number of areas. First, I had a deep and negative reaction to the association of my fellow pastors. The strong and seemingly overwhelming stress on church politics, self-advancement, personal glory, financial achievement, and congregational statistics made me feel that the true spirituality I was looking for was seriously lacking. Second, I had deep theological concerns. The order of worship service seemed cold and personal and unimaginative. The great stress on salvation by grace and the minimization on works was a scriptural contradiction. In contemplating scripture, I found the work passages far exceeded the grace passages. I found myself recoiling at the indifferent reaction of my church leadership to the virgin birth, the creation, the wide acceptance and use of loose translations of scriptures, and the general lack of response to basic Christian morals. Was God really dead, or had he gone into retirement and ceased to care about his creation? Why did he sink into strange and sudden silence with the last word in the Bible? On October, on October 1, 1968, Reverend Novak and his family moved to Bloomfield, Colorado, where he was made pastor of the Lutheran Church of Hope, a very prestigious and desirable assignment. From all outward appearances, it left nothing to be desired. But there was something desperately wrong. Something was missing. There was a spiritual hollowness in his heart, and it was equally shared by his wife, Alice. Alice was a music educator, and in Bloomfield, she had a number of Latter-day Saint students. She could not help but notice something very special about them. She reported to her husband she had asked one of her little Mormon students if Mormons were Christian. Of course, Reverend Novak knew the Lutheran Church position that Mormons were not Christian. The little Mormon girl, however, boldly stated that Mormons most definitely were Christian. Alice was touched by this little girl's testimony. Next came an invitation from the family of one of the piano students to attend the Bloomfield Ward Open House. The young student's family had resisted because they didn't think it was appropriate to send such an invitation to a Lutheran pastor. But the little girl persisted to the point where the parents reluctantly consented. On the appointed day, Alice was unavailable to, unavailable to attend, and Reverend Novak was hosting a regional meeting of the Lutheran Church of Hope. But as the time of the open house arrived, he had a strange and overpowering urge to leave the Lutheran meeting and attend. He yielded. As he entered the Latter-day Saint Chapel, he said he was met by a friendly and concerned gentleman who talked with him and stayed by his side for fully two hours, answering questions and just being supportive. The Reverend continued, As the program began, a, number, or a member of the 70s made a presentation on the doctrine of the Church, which I am sure was inspired by the Spirit, he said. I shall never forget it. From the chapel, we were led to the baptismal font by a young priest who explained baptism according to the theology of the Latter-day Saints. 
This mature presentation by such a young man made a great impression, he said, because I had seriously questioned the Lutheran theology of baptism for years. I sensed that what this young man had said was really true. Then we went to the Relief Society room, where we were given a beautiful, intelligent presentation. To hear a lovely woman give such a positive and strong testimony was heartwarming to me. We were then ushered into the seminary room to view a film, Christ in America. I could hardly contain my excitement, so many of my questions regarding church history were suddenly answered. I was currently pursuing a doctorate in religion. Here I was, my doctrine nearly complete, and my answers to my quest coming in the Latter-day Saint Chapel. It was probably at this time, said Reverend Novak, at the culmination of so much presented so well that I was actually converted. I knew that this had to be the true church. My heart was ready, but how could I become a part of it all? How hard it is to give up physical security and comfortable traditions. I purchased the Book of Mormon that day and went home elated. I remember telling Alice, there is something special there. I really felt good at that church. They have something I've never known before. The summer of 1974, after I received my doctorate, I was in spiritual turmoil. The Ward Open House remained a haunting reminder that something better was available. One evening, the mother of one of these Mormon students called regarding a musical question. For the first time, I bared my spiritual turmoil to a patient and understanding ear. Not long after, our family was invited to their family home evening. We came away so warmed. Yet how impossible it seemed for us to make such a change. My job, security, comfortable life, social standing, family ties, house, pension, it all flooded through my mind. Yet how does one in the name of Jesus Christ teach and preach that which he knows is not true? Finally, in the fall of 1974, although things were still going well at my parish, I knew in my heart that a change was necessary. I was spiritually starved, and I was even more concerned for the spiritual malnutrition of my family. And so it was, on October 25, 1974, on a specially beautiful day in Colorado, as I left the University of Denver where I was pursuing a second doctorate, a strange and overpowering urge came upon me to go to the Colorado Mission Home. I had memorized the dress long before. And so although I had other pressing matters on my agenda, my automobile seemed to refuse to go anywhere except to 709 Clarkston Street. I kept telling myself I merely wanted to drive by to see what the mission home looked like. I remember, however, I did stop the car in front of the house, my intention being only to look at the place over from the outside. I remember sitting there for a moment intending not to shut off the engine, but somehow the engine did shut off. And I sat there and looked at my watch. It was noon, 12.35 p.m. I told myself it was inappropriate to call on anyone during the lunch hour. So I remember getting out of the car. I remember standing on the sidewalk at the base of the steps thinking, this is a nice place, now I'll just turn around and go back to the car. I have no business here. After all, I am a Lutheran pastor, but instead, I labored up those steps. I must have rung the buzzer because the door opened. <laughs> and there stood a bright-eyed missionary. He invited me in and said, I said, really, I, uh, I shouldn't be here today. Besides, it's lunch hour. He said, we're through eating. I almost panicked. Why was I here? How could I get out of this one? And so I said, I want you to know something. I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I'm here because I'm interested in all the world's religion. So I thought I'd just drop by and see what the Mormons are all about. I don't want to take too much of your time, because it's lunch hour. The young man explained again, we are through eating. 
One thing led to another. All the while, I was reminding them that I was a minister of the gospel and therefore not a good prospect. Somehow, we spent an hour or two. I apologized upon leaving and said I had taken too much of their time. They wished me well, and I reminded them again that I was a Lutheran pastor and therefore not a prospect. But as I drove away, I had a warm feeling in my heart and yet a nagging fear that these good missionaries might believe that I wasn't a prospect. One day later, the bright-eyed missionary telephoned me at my office in the Lutheran Church of Hope, of all places. I was so glad he called. During the conversation, he asked me if he and his companion would come over and meet my family the next evening. Two missionaries came to our home, and the process of our conversion continued step by step, logically, without hesitation. On January the 25th, 1975, three months and five hours exactly from the time I rang the doorbell at the Colorado Mission Home, our family entered the waters of baptism at the Bloomfield Ward Chapel. After half a lifetime of searching, finally our joy was full. Kurt and Kristen relished the new challenge and associations of the Church. They grew and matured beautifully. It was a joy to see them blossom as they learned the ways of Christ's true Church on earth. Alice and I equally relished the joy of having found the truth. Our hearts were finally at peace. We had a great desire and a sense of urgency to go to the temple where we could have our family sealed for all time and eternity. As soon as we were able to go to the Salt Lake Temple following our first year in the church, we eagerly went. The support of so many people who accompanied us was tremendous. The sealing for all time and eternity was one of the most glorious occasions of our lives. The reason for the urgency of going to the temple and being sealed as a family was realized when just two weeks later, a tragic automobile accident claimed the life of our 11-year-old daughter, Kristen. As we stagger under the heavy loss and the grief of her mortal absence, and as our lives, or her absence in our lives, as we study and examine the process of the accident, we know in our hearts that it was the will of our Heavenly Father that her spirit was called unto Himself. We are strengthened and comforted in the knowledge that her joy is full. We have gratitude in our hearts that the timing of our Heavenly Father was so kind and merciful. At such a time, we can only ask questions and stand amazed as we ponder the answers. What if we had not joined the true Church of Jesus Christ and given this, Christ, this gift to Kristen? What if we had delayed our conversion to a more convenient time? What if we had not gone to the temple with such a sense of urgency when we did? What if we had not given Kristen the great joy of primary, Sunday school, sacrament meeting, and family home evening? During the week before the accident, Kristen asked her mother if it would be possible for her to go back to the temple, she had loved it so. On a lonely Kansas cemetery, there stands a gray monument. On it are the names, the four names of our family. At the bottom are engraved these words, This family is sealed for all time and eternity. Behind the tears of temporary loss, our eyes show the clear and joyous knowledge that our decision was truly the correct decision. Surely the gospel does make good men better and women and children better than they've ever been before. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. I am grateful for the singing of that marvelous doxology, that hymn of praise to God our Eternal Father, to the risen Lord and to the Holy Ghost. Now in this final session this Sunday afternoon, 
I am hopeful that somewhere there may be listening, even out of curiosity, a few of those who were once close to the Church but who, for one reason or another, have drifted away. It is to these I should like to speak a few words with an earnest prayer that I may do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. May I first read to you portions of a letter recently sent to Temple Square. It began, Dear Sirs, I am not of the Mormon religion. I have never believed in God or Jesus Christ. I have never understood how to love a spirit that I don't know. When I was baptized, I accepted Christ because I have always been told that if I wasn't saved, I would go to hell. Being saved has always been thrown at me. I haven't gone to church in a very long time because I was always being pushed into something I didn't and still don't quite understand. Someone showed me a pamphlet, Man's Search for Happiness, and explained what it said. I opened my eyes because through the Mormon religion God made sense to me. A small voice inside of me told me to search for God before it didn't make any difference to me if God was there or not. Now it does. Who is God? Why is God? Why does he need or want me? Why am I here? Why am I so lost, so very, very lost? There are thousands of questions in my head that I want so badly to fulfill with answers. And since I have no place to go or I don't know how to start searching, I'm asking you to give me some understanding of him and the Mormon religion. Please help me find my way. Listen to my cry for help and give me sensible answers. Pamphlets, letters, cards, notes, anything, please. Thank you so much. I am satisfied that there are thousands across the world who in their loneliness and hunger for truth are crying out for help, as is the writer of that letter. And in addition to these, there is another group who are members of the Church in name, but who have left and who now in their hearts long to return but do not know how and are too timid to try. They, too, in moments of quiet reflection, ask, Where am I here? Why am I so lost? Please, please help me find my way. As I think of them, I recall a beautiful story, one of the most beautiful ever told. May I recount it in the language of him who first spoke it? A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided among them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, 
How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put his ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. To you, my brethren and sisters, who have taken your spiritual inheritance and left, and now find an emptiness in your lives, the way is open for your return. Note the words of the prodigal son, and when he came to himself. Have you not also reflected on your condition and circumstances and longed to return? The boy in the parable wanted only to be a servant at his father's house, but his father, seeing him afar off, ran to meet him and kissed him, put a robe on his back, a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and had a feast prepared for him. So it will be with you. If you will take the first timid step to return, you will find open arms to greet you and warm friends to make you welcome. I think I know why some of you left. You were offended by a thoughtless individual who injured you, and you mistook his actions as representative of the Church. Or you may have moved from an area where you were known to an area where you were largely alone and there grew up with only little knowledge of the Church. Or you may have been drawn to other company or habits which you felt were incompatible with association in the Church. Or you may have felt yourself wiser in the wisdom of the world than those of your Church associates and with some air of disdain withdrew yourself from their company. I am not here to dwell on the reasons. I hope you will not. Put the past behind you, said the prophet Isaiah in another age, with words that fit our own. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye are willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. This, my beloved friends, is what the gospel is all about, to make bad men good and good men better, as President McKay was wont to say. There is a process of change, a procedure in the Church by which even those who have sinned seriously may come back. Do not let pride stand in your way. If that is a problem, there is a story from the Old Testament I should like to give you. 
Naaman was captain of the host of the king of Syria, a great man, a man mighty in valor, but he was a leper. And Naaman's wife had a little maid, a daughter of Israel, who said to her mistress, Would God, my lord Naaman, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. When Naaman heard this, he prepared rich gifts and a letter to the king of Israel. But the king, learning of the reason for Naaman's coming, was frightened, for he had not the power to cleanse the leper. Then Elisha the prophet sent word to the king that he would deal with the captain. So Naaman came with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. But Elisha did not even so much as go out to greet the captain. He sent a messenger to Naaman, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Naaman was insulted that he should be told to wash in Jordan when there were cleaner streams in his own land, and he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants pleaded with him to do as Elisha had suggested. The proud captain finally relented, and the scripture records, Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And so I repeat to you, do not let pride stand in your way. The way of the gospel is a simple way. Some of the requirements may appear to you even as elementary and unnecessary. Do not spurn them. Humble yourselves and walk in obedience. I promise that the results that follow will be marvelous to behold and satisfying to experience. Where do you begin? How do you get in touch? In every unit of the Church throughout the world, there are two men who have been given responsibility for you. If you do not know them, call the bishop of the ward in which you live or write a letter to the Church. There will come to you those who can help without embarrassment. In kindness and love and appreciation, they will show you the way and take you by the hand and walk with you. Try it. There is everything to gain and nothing to lose. Come back, my friends. There is more of peace to be found in the Church than you have known in a long while. There are many whose friendship you will come to enjoy. There is reading to be done, instruction to be received, discussions in which to participate that will strengthen, stretch your minds, and feed your spirits. The quiet longings of your heart will be fulfilled. The emptiness you have known for so long will be replaced with a fullness of joy. I have a friend like you. More than 40 years ago, we were in the mission field together. In the years that followed, he went off to war. In his loneliness, he picked up with careless companions. He married out of the Church. He followed habits which had made him feel he would not be welcomed. He moved from one part of the country to another. His identity was lost. One Sunday I found myself in a California city for a state conference. My name and picture had been in the local newspaper. The phone rang at the stake center as the stake president and I entered the building that morning. 
The call was for me, and the caller identified himself. He wanted to see me. I excused myself from the meeting I was to have held early that morning and asked the state president to carry on with it. I had something more important to do. He came, this friend of mine, timidly and somewhat fearfully. He had been away for a long time. We embraced as brothers long separated. At first, the conversation was awkward, but it soon warmed as we discussed together days spent in England many years ago. There were tears in the eyes of this strong man as he spoke of the church of which he had once been so effective a part, and then told of the long, empty years that had followed. He dwelled upon them as a man speaks of nightmares. When he had described those wasted years, we talked of his returning. He thought it would be difficult, that it would be embarrassing, but he agreed to try. I had a letter from him not long ago. He said, I'm back. I'm back, and how wonderful it feels to be home again. And so do you, my friends, who, like him, long to return, but are reluctant to take the first step. Try. Let us meet you where you now stand and take you by the hand and help you. I promise you it will feel good to be home again. I bear you my witness that this is the work of the Lord. It is the kingdom of God in the earth. It bears the name of the only begotten of the Father. Here you will find happiness and strength and a reassuring peace you have not known for a long while, the peace that passeth all understanding. God bless you to try. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Yeah.